Turn to Revelation chapter 14. I don't want to rehash because we've been here and you can listen to these messages up online. Last week or last time I was here, we got down into verse 7 about the everlasting gospel. We're inside a bit of a parenthesis here. The victory campaign of that war between the two wonders God saw, John saw in heaven, the dragon and the woman. This is about that ages-long conflict, that hatred that Satan has for the people of Israel. Satan's hatred for Israel and the church is equal. But when the church is taken out by Christ, all of that hatred is zero. All Satan can do to the church after the rapture is blaspheme it. Those dwelling in heaven. But all of his wrath is turned upon Israel to prevent God from fulfilling His promises and bringing in Messiah. And we're in the midst of that. We had a heavenly campaign, Michael and his archangels and the dragon. We had an earthly campaign where the dragon went after the woman in the wilderness and God protected a remnant of Israel. We had the commander-in-chief of that earthly campaign, the beast out of the sea. We had the propaganda minister, the, the false prophet, the beast out of the earth. We talked about that. And then in chapter 14, we get into the victory campaign. See, the victory in God's wars has already been decided. In the American Civil War, it was thought that the Union would make a quick end to the South. In the first major battle at First Manassas, or First Bull Run, in 1861, the Union was so sure of victory that congressmen and socialites and high-ranking individuals took buggies and picnic baskets out of Washington and rode south to watch the battle on the hills outside of Manassas Junction. So sure it would be over. And it looked that way for the first half of the battle and then things changed. The Confederates as they were treating said, look, there stands Jackson like a stone wall. Let's stand and resist. And they did and ended up routing the Union Army and everybody literally went running back to Washington. Carriages and rich people got trampled and picnic lunches got scattered everywhere. And what man thought he figured out turned out to be opposite. The mistake that the Confederate Army made is that they didn't chase the troops all the way back to Washington. The war would have been over the other way around had they done that. But God had a different plan. Things didn't turn out the way either side fought in that war. It was a bloody conflict that they didn't know who was going to win. General Grant never defeated General Lee in a battle. Never. Lee won every battle. He just had more men he could keep feeding into the meat grinder. And after five years many widowed mo mothers and wives and people in the grave, about a hundred thousands. Things didn't end up as we thought. But when God has a game plan, when God has a battle plan and writes about the victory, it's assured. There's no question. It's going to happen just like He wrote it. War in human life is something in which we can see the providence of God. We can see it. We forget about those things in our everyday life. But war is amazing. It shows us the providence of God, but it's judgment upon sin. War is God's judgment upon sin in this life. We see the war and the torment in this country. We need to realize that's God's judgment. This mess with the health law and the Republicans this and Donald Trump this and the Democrats, that's all God's judgment. I'm glad people stood up against that health care bill the other day. It was a load of garbage. I'm glad somebody stood up to the president. 
I'm, the confusion, though, is God's judgment. He's not God. I voted for Him, but He's not God. But the confusion is God's judgment. The war in this country is God's judgment. And hopefully that judgment against sin will point us to Christ so that the hell, the judgment of God against sin after this earth won't become real for some. War is God's judgment against sin here in life. Hell is God's judgment against sin after life. And in that, God's providence is revealed. And that's the same thing here in this war. Ages long war. There's a victory campaign and the victory campaign is sure. It's not in doubt. It's sure. And in this victory campaign, we've talked about, I think in chapter 14, we have four snapshots from this war. Just like when we think about World War II, we think of snapshots that mean a lot to us. You know, I'm repeating myself many times here. This is a snapshot of victory, right? We see this, we know this is allied victory in the Pacific Theater, World War II, right? Iwo Jima. The first five verses is a snapshot of assembly. Jesus Christ with His 144,000 standing in the rubble atop Mount Zion claiming victory just like these Marines claimed victory atop Mount Suribachi. And then we get into a snapshot of judgment. That's what we're in here in verses 6-12. through 12. Normandy Beach. Oh, the battle was far from over. It was just getting started. For some of these transports, when the, when the, when the doors dropped... The men were dead before they even got off the transport because of German bullets. But in the end, the Allies stormed Normandy Beach and uh, what were the other beaches there? I can't remember. Oklahoma Beach maybe? And uh, there was victory. And when we see this snapshot today, we see this as a snapshot of judgment against the Third Reich. This was the end of the Third Reich. Once this beach was stormed, it was all but over. It was a matter of time. And that's what we see here in verses 6-12, through 12, a snapshot of judgment. The end is here to judgments for sure. It's the beginning of the end. There's nothing that can change it. Then we have a snapshot of rest in verse 13 and chapter 14, a snapshot of reaping. But last week, this snapshot of judgment in verse 6 through 12, and we see judgment here proclaimed via an angel preaching the everlasting gospel, being another angel announcing the fall of Babylon and the world system, and a third angel announcing the judgment against the beast and all those who received the mark. And we began to talk about this first angel, this first angelic messenger who came to preach the everlasting gospel. Verses 6 through 7. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So we have the everlasting gospel preached by an angel, the first time it's ever preached by an angel in the Scriptures. In the New Testament, when the gospel of grace was preached, an angel couldn't preach it. An angel appeared to Cornelius, who was seeking God, but all the angel could say was, there's a man named Peter coming to you, and when he comes, he will tell you what to do. The angel couldn't preach it. Peter had to come and preach it. But here with the church taken out, and the remnant scattered, and God's two preachers assassinated and then resurrected and returned to heaven, an angel flies to preach the everlasting gospel. That word gospel there is where we get, in Greek is where we get the word evangelist, evangelism. It's the same word that is gospel throughout the New Testament. And we have the everlasting gospel preached and then it's told us what that gospel is in verse 7. 
Give glory to God because His judgment has come and worship the Creator. That gospel is defined. Is the name Jesus in that gospel? Is the cross mentioned? Is the substitutionary atonement and eternal life mentioned? But yet it's a gospel. It's part of the gospel. The gospel that God is Creator, He's going to judge the earth, you better worship Him. That's the gospel that Adam, Cain, Abel, Seth, Enos, Mahalahiel, Jared, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Sham, Ham, Japheth, the nations, Nimrod, all the way down to Abraham. That's the gospel they. That's the gospel Job knew. Is it any different than the gospel we know? No. It's part of the gospel that gets neglected in our modern day churchianity. We all want to talk about Jesus as if He's our homeboy or our best friend, and we don't remember that key to the gospel is there is a Creator God, and He has made Himself known. And He will judge every thought, action, and intention of the heart, and before Him all must stand. Worship Him who made heaven and earth. The gospel of Jesus Christ has no foundation without those truths. If Christ is, no, is something other than Creator, then how is what He has to offer any different than what the Hindu gurus or the Buddhist lamas have to offer? The everlasting gospel. That means it goes from Adam to the end of time. It's everlasting. It's the gospel. It's good news. The fact that God is a Creator, that God knows good and evil, and that God will judge in righteousness. That is good news to those that love God. The prophet Nahum says that God is a furious storm. A furious storm. Beware. But in that same chapter, a little bit later, Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knoweth them that trust in Him. God is a furious storm but He's also the shelter from that storm. Jesus Christ can save us to a relationship with our Creator, and Jesus Christ is the only one that can save us from our Creator. Praise God. The everlasting Gospel. I want to pause for a minute and talk about four forms of the Gospel that we see in the New Testament. Make no mistake, there are not four Gospels in the Bible. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But as far as the gospel message, there's not four gospel messages. There's four forms of the gospel. Is that any surprise? There's not three gods. There's one God who made heaven and earth, but He's revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's not three Jesse Boyds in this life. There may be people named Jesse Boyd. I think there's a guy on Facebook that's some kind of musician named Jesse Boyd. It's not me. His name's Jesse Michael Boyd too. It's strange. I think. It's not me. But there's, three Jesse, there's not three Jesse Boyds here, but I have a body, a soul, and a spirit. One Jesse Boyd, but it's manifested in three persons. Body, soul, and spirit. They, they're one. Just like the Trinity. It's the same thing with the Gospel. There are four forms of the Gospel in the New Testament that have their place and their emphases. And I think it's worth talking about these. The everlasting Gospel is one of these. Four aspects of the Gospel in terms of emphasis. They're all one. And not one of them is ultimately independent of the others. 
And we can see an example of this in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all present the life of Christ. When put together, they don't contradict one another, but each emphasizes a different aspect of Christ's ministry. And when put together, it's a full picture of Christ. They're there for a reason. And just as there are four Gospels of the life of Christ, there are four forms of the Gospel in the New Testament. The first one I want to talk about today, the everlasting Gospel mentioned here is one of them. But I want to go to what's called the Gospel of the Kingdom. Turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 14. Jesus is in His what we call the Olivet Discourse where He is speaking to His disciples about the last days. He's speaking to Jews about events that will affect Jews in the last days. With the full revelation of the New Testament, we know these are after the church age. What Jesus calls the Great Tribulation is the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week or the Tribulation after Antichrist betrays Israel. Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. Therefore, what's it therefore? When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's the middle of the 70th week. The Antichrist betrays himself. So this is connected, the fulfillment of this preaching is connected to the Daniel 70th week. A gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world before the end can come. But yet, Jesus tells the church that we ought to be ready at any moment for Him to come for us. So obviously, the coming we're to be ready for can't be the end of the world spoken of here. It's His coming for His church. Just like the Jewish wedding. What is the gospel of the kingdom? It's good news. It's good news that God purposes to set up a kingdom, a literal, physical kingdom here on this earth, over which a son of David, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, shall reign on a literal throne over the earth, and the earth will be restored to the state it was in in the Garden of Eden. The Jewish rabbis speak of Ganidan, the Garden of Eden. And when we speak about the kingdom and the eternal state with Jews, we talk about Ganadon, the Garden of Eden, to be returned, the curse removed. There's a time when the earth must be restored to fulfill all righteousness before God destroys it and gives a new heaven and a new earth. The gospel of the kingdom is that there will be a king who sits on a literal throne in a literal capital city of Jerusalem, reigning over a literal nation who will be chief over all nations over all the earth. Everything God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be fulfilled literally. That's the gospel of the kingdom. We see this in Isaiah 11, the great millennial kingdom passage. I had a brother say to me one time, you believe in a thousand year reign of Christ. There's one verse in, in, in Revelation that says Christ will reign for a thousand years. You build a whole doctrine upon it. I said, no, my friend, you're, you're, you're ignorant of the Scriptures. You err not knowing the Scriptures. Have you ever read Isaiah 11? All Revelation does is tell us how long it'll be. But the millennium's all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 11, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The, the, the wolf will eat sheep like the ox. The kids will play with snakes and spiders and not be hurt in God's holy mountain. That's the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is the preaching of that kingdom. 
It's distinctively Jewish in character because the gospel of the kingdom focuses on the fulfillment of the promises made to the Jews. You want to say that people want to say nowadays it's fad doctrine, this replacement theology. The church is the new Israel. This goes back to Catholic. This was preached by the Catholics long before Luther was ever born or Calvin. Catholic. The Catholics tried to usurp everything Israel had done to give themselves authority. And the very same unfaithfulness that Israel demonstrated, the Catholics have demonstrated. Jews and Catholics have way more in common with each other than they have with the body of Christ that's Jew and Gentile together. But um, this idea that the church is the new Israel, that the Israel of God is Gentiles, and that God has forsaken His people, is a false teaching. It's a false doctrine, and it's not... God's promises are not only connected to a people, they're connected to a piece of real estate. Who knows where the first time in the Scriptures the word holy is used and what it's used to talk about. First time in the Scriptures, is the word holy used to describe God? No. Where's the first time the word holy is? Anybody know? It's not the book of Genesis. Exodus chapter 3. What did God call holy before He called anything else holy? Anybody know? What was Moses told to do? A piece of dirt was called holy. A piece of dirt. Take off your shoes because where you're standing is holy ground. God called a piece of dirt holy. A piece of real estate. That real estate would be where God revealed Himself to the nation and gave the law. That real estate is part of the land grant that God promised to Abraham. I will give you the land and your descendants the land from the great river Euphrates to the river of Egypt. That includes all of modern day Israel, all of modern day Jordan, parts of Syria, the place where Abraham lived before God called him out, the place that would have had the Garden of Eden there before the flood. It includes uh, all of David and Solomon's kingdom. It includes the desert where Israel wandered for 40 years. It includes the land of Goshen where she became a nation in Egypt. And it includes Mount Sinai, the holy ground where God would give His law. God's promises are connected to a piece of dirt. They always have been. They always will be. He will do what He said He's going to do for Israel, for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're spiritual partakers of that thing. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the emphasis Turn to Luke 31. I mean, Luke 1. Luke 1, 32 and 33. We have the gospel of the kingdom preached by an angel to Mary. And behold, thou shalt conceive, Luke 1, 31, and in, uh, in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord shall give unto Him the throne of His father David. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus would be given the throne of David. And He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there shall be no end. That's the gospel of the kingdom. We're Gentiles, but that ought to excite us. That ought to compel us to pray for the nation of Israel. She's got hard times coming. God is going to undo everything that's been done there the last 50 years. And they'll have lost everything. Many will perish. But they will be driven to call for Christ and they'll be restored. 
May God bring many Jews into the church before then. We ought to be compelled. Not sit back and say, oh, the harvest is four months away. God's going to fulfill His promises to Israel. No. The fields are wide unto harvest. That's why we go now to reach Him. It's a privilege to be in the church for Jew and Gentile. There are two preachings of the gospel of the kingdom in the New Testament. Two times where this is the main emphasis. The first is in the past. It was preached by John the Baptist. It was preached by the disciples of Jesus. But the king was rejected. And this gospel of the kingdom was put on hold for the nation of Israel. Turn to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 5 through 7. These twelve, Jesus' twelve disciples, He sent forth and commanded them, saying, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. His disciples were sent to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The king was presented, but he was rejected. God would have fulfilled His promises. Israel wasn't... They didn't lose all their chances when Christ was crucified. God gave them 40 years from the resurrection of Christ until the destruction of the temple by the Romans to repent and to recognize their Jesus as King. When Stephen preached in Jerusalem, that was important because Stephen gave the religious leaders one final chance to believe upon this Jesus who is Christ. And he gave them one final chance. And what did they do? They rejected it. They stoned him and they threw their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul and they rushed upon him. Stephen looked into heaven and did not see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father until his enemies be made his footstool. He saw Jesus standing. Not to welcome Stephen home, as people say. He was standing because he was ready to return and sit on that throne of David and fulfill the promises made to Israel if they accepted him. But they rejected him and he sat back down. Stephen was welcomed into his presence and then the Jews were scattered 40 years later to the ends of the earth. Scattered. Until such time as God would regather them again and this thing would be preached again This time, they would not reject it. Turn to Romans 11.25. Daniel, would you read that? Romans 11.25. And Jim, if you would read Acts 15, 14, and 15. Romans 11.25. The gospel of the kingdom was preached to Israel. They rejected it. It was preached for 40 years mainly to Jews. The first church was Jewish. The first pastors were Jewish. The first missionaries were Jewish. The first people that heard the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ were Jewish. And then the Gentiles began to hear. 40 years it was rejected. 
Blindness has happened to Israel now until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. In fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah said it about Messiah. It's an easy thing for me to be salvation to Israel, but I'm, the Messiah is going to be a light to the Gentiles. He's going to be a salvation to all the ends of the earth. It was all, none of this was a surprise. God didn't change His plan because Israel rejected. It was all planned. They were given an opportunity. The gospel of the kingdom was preached, but now they've been blinded as a nation until the Gentiles become in the church age. That'll be many Jews involved in that well, but the nation itself. Read Acts 15, 14 and 15, Jim, if you don't mind. Okay. God purposed to visit the Gentiles and bring out a people. The church age. Okay. The gospel of the kingdom preached, rejected. Now we're in the church age. After this, it goes on to say, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David. This is prophet Amos. So there's not just a past preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. There's a future preaching as well. But when in the book of Acts, we encounter people who after Pentecost, after the church was born, after Stephen continued to know only the gospel of the kingdom. They only knew Messiah as the gospel as Messiah coming to set up a kingdom. And they had to be more instructed more perfectly that Messiah was rejected. Let's go preach the grace of God and realize that the kingdom will come in God's time in his, uh, according to His purposes. Turn to Acts 18. Acts 18, 24 and 28. There was a powerful Jew preaching after the manner of John the Baptist, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Verse 24, A certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord. He was preaching truth. Nothing different, nothing changed. Nothing new. Eternal truth. But knowing only the baptism of John, knowing only the baptism of repentance of a coming king, the gospel of the kingdom. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla heard, they took unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. They took him and they shared with him what had happened. Messiah came. He was rejected. He ordained His church, the Holy Spirit came. We're, we're going out and preaching the gospel now to the Gentiles. Same thing Jesus told His disciples on the Mount of Olives. Lord, at this time will You restore the kingdom to Your people Israel. It's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God holds in His own hand and has in His own power, but you go and be My witnesses to the end of the earth. Apollos was instructed more perfectly. And when he was supposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, when he was come, help them much which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews and that publicly showing by the Scriptures that Jesus was Christ. Apollos, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, was more perfectly instructed so that his message wasn't only about a king, it was about a Messiah who came to pay the price for the sins of the world. There's a transition here where the emphasis is moving in the book of Acts from the gospel of the kingdom, the primary emphasis in moving to the gospel of God's grace to Jew and Gentile. 
It's not the gospel changing, it's the emphasis changing. Acts 19. This is important because we have a similar situation and we have one of just a few instances in the book of Acts where there is speaking in tongues, confirmed, used to confirm what God was doing. I want to read Acts 19. It came to pass while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul having passed through the upper coast came to Ephesus and there found certain disciples and finding certain disciples... He said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what then were you baptized? And they said, Unto John's baptism. These were disciples that heard the preaching of John, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they put their faith in a Messiah who would come and set up a kingdom. Before the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit didn't come and dwell with the believers. He came and went, like the Old Testament. These people hadn't even heard about the gift of the Holy Ghost. But they were preaching the coming King. The Gospel of the Kingdom. Then Paul said, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on Him which should come after Him, which is Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul shared with them, you're preaching and believing truth of a coming kingdom, of a coming king, and you're looking forward in faith, just as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the patriarchs did. But the king came, his name was Jesus, and he was crucified and rejected. He will come again and do these things. But now, let's go preach to the ends of the earth the gospel of God's grace. And then it says, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We have a transition here from disciples who only knew the gospel of the kingdom to those that knew what God's plan and purpose was for the Messiah to be rejected, for the gospel of God's grace, for His death, burial, and resurrection to be preached to the Gentiles. We have a transition. We have a transition. Then it says, when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. The tongues and the prophecy weren't a sign of genuine salvation. They were a sign confirming for these disciples the transition from the emphasis upon the kingdom to the emphasis upon the grace of God and the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Exact thing, same thing happened at Pentecost. Exact same thing happened with the Gentiles. Confirming the transition from the emphasis on the kingdom to the emphasis on the nations and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the gospel of grace. Tongues confirmed it for Jews. The Jews require a sign. That's what that sign was there. To confirm the Word. And he went into the synagogue. This was after this was done with these group of twelve. He went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading things concerning the kingdom of God. So the emphasis was now upon the grace of God. The kingdom had been rejected and postponed for Israel. But that didn't mean Paul stopped preaching it. He continued to preach the kingdom of God. That this Messiah would come and do these things. So the gospel didn't change. The emphasis did, but he still preached the kingdom of God to the Jews, just like we do today. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now we see the transition from a message to Jews about the kingdom 
to a message about Jesus Christ to Jews and Gentiles. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Why? To confirm the transition in emphases in the gospel. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out of them. I'm not afraid of this scripture. I'm not afraid to read this to you. It's what happened. It doesn't mean these charlatans on TV who sell their handkerchiefs have any power from anything other than the evil one. I'm not afraid of this. Then certain of the va- what the charlatans on t- TV need to do is read these next couple verses. Then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists, i.e. TV preachers, faith healers, took upon them to call over them which had evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And there were seven sons of one Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests which did so. And the evil spirit answered and says, Jesus I know, Paul I knew, no. Who the heck are you? My paraphrase. Modern English. Modern English translation. And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. A lot of these people are so big and bold to call out a demon under every rock are foolish. The evil one has lots of power. Don't trifle with him. Unless you're covered in the Word. Still you don't trifle with him. Even Michael the archangel didn't bring a railing accusation against the devil when they disputed over the body of Moses, Jude says, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Be careful what you say to the evil one. Just like we all, Ecclesiastes said, be careful when you enter into the house of God what you say. Let your words be few. God will hold us accountable for what we say. Israel spoke its own judgment in the desert. They said, you brought us out here, Moses, to die here. They spoke prophecy. God says, you've spoken your own judgment. That's what's going to happen. And the man in whom, okay, they fled wounded and naked. Verse 17, And this was known to who? All the Jews and the Greeks or Gentiles dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And here's how we know these signs were real. How they were from God. Here's how we know they were real. Not because people were healed, not because there were aprons, not because people seemed to benefit from a sign. This is how we know these miracles were from God. Verse 18. This isn't what we see in the TV churches. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. Many of them also which used curious arts, that means occultic activities, brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver so mightily grew the Word of God and prevailed. Here we have a transition in the book of Acts from the emphasis upon the gospel of the kingdom to the second form of the gospel, which is the gospel of God's grace. And in it, mighty signs were done to confirm the word. And the proof that they were signs from God is that men repented and turned from their evil ways. Jeremiah the prophet says that the proof of a true pastor, a true preacher, is not mighty words and eloquence of speech. There were plenty of false prophets in Israel's land those days. The proof is that their preaching brought men to repentance. Even if it was just one. That's the fruit. Does our preaching bring men to repentance? That's the proof that these signs were real. But here we have this transition. The gospel of the kingdom. It transitioned 
into an emphasis for Jew and Gentile to the ends of the earth because the king was rejected. The emphasis now in the church age isn't necessarily on the kingdom, although that ought to be preached, just as Paul continued to preach it. That's part of it. But we emphasize today what? The emphasis today is what I would call the second form of the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel of the grace of God. This same Messiah who will come and set up a kingdom on a literal throne is also the Savior of the world. And His salvation is available not just to Jew in a physical kingdom in a certain space and time, but His salvation is available to all living in all places throughout this church age to all who would believe upon His death, burial, and resurrection. The spiritual promises made to Abraham. Now this gospel of the kingdom has a past preaching, but there's also a future preaching of it. After the church is raptured out, the gospel of the coming kingdom will be preached again to the whole world. It was preached to Israel primarily. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24? It will be preached to the whole world and then the end will come. So there's a future preaching it. Once the church is taken out, friends, the emphasis is no longer believe upon Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. The emphasis is believe upon Christ, the One who died, was resurrected, the Messiah, because He's coming soon and His kingdom will be here. Are you ready for it? The end of the earth. Who is it that's going to preach to the end of the earth? Not us. The church is taken out. 144,000 Jewish witnesses take a gospel with a Jewish flavor and they preach it to the end of the earth. And many Gentiles who have not heard the gospel in this present dispensation will believe. Not the ones that have heard it and trifled with it now. They'll reject it. They'll worship Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians. But many will believe these tribulation saints and they'll pay for it with their lives. But it will be preached again. Many will be saved and yet martyred but this preaching, this future preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is not primarily for salvation because the tribulation saints will be few. The remnant of Israel will be few. Only a third living in the land. Only a tenth in the whole earth. The, the, the future preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is not necessarily for salvation. It's for a witness. Jesus said for a witness that God is going to do exactly what He said He was going to do. That is a witness both to the saved and the damned. A powerful witness. Some people need to hear a powerful truth. The last thing they hear before they're cast into a devil's hell. God does exactly what God says He's going to do. That's the heart of the Gospel. Friends, if you don't believe God does what His Word says and you, you don't believe Jesus Christ, that's the crooks of it. Who has the authority in your life? You or God? All man-made religion, all false religion in this world, every ism on this planet, every false teacher, every charlatan goes back to one spiritual father. And it, it is the devil, but it isn't. One spiritual father. His name was Cain. Cain is the father of all man-made religion. Because Cain says the authority is not God, the Creator. The authority is me. I'm not going to give a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. I'm a farmer, and I'm going to give of, of my crops to God. I'm going to come to God on my terms. God rebuked him. Cain's countenance was fallen. Then God said to Cain, if you, do us, uh, if you do well, why are you upset? If you do not well, sin lies at the door. 
And His desire will be unto you and you will rule over Him. That word sin there in the Hebrew is the same word as sin offering. God says, if you do not well, sin lieth at the door. In other words, I'll even send you a sin offering to your door so you don't have to humble yourself and go to your brother, brother and purchase one from Him. Since you're so full of pride, I'll send you a sin offering. He'll be right there at the door. You open the door and you'll rule over Him and you can do what's right. And then what did Cain do? Cain does exactly what every ism and every religion on this planet does when it sees a man more righteous than him. He got angry and he slew his brother. That's what Islam does when people become Christians. That's what Hinduism and Buddhism, that's what Catholicism does. That's what churchianity does to its own when it sees men righteous who want to preach the gospel. They hate them because their, spirit, their father is Cain. That's man-made religion. And even the way of Cain needs to know the truth. The truth is God does exactly what He says He's going to do. He requires a blood sacrifice because He's going to send a blood sacrifice to pay for the prices of all men's sins. And He did exactly what He said He was going to do. God does what He said He's going to do. This is a witness. This is a witness. That's why we should preach it now. It ought to be a witness. The Jesus who saves you because He was died, buried, and resurrected is coming to set up a kingdom. The announcement that the time of the kingdom of Messiah, the one who was crucified, buried, who rose again, the same Jesus who built the church, who raptured His church, is come. The time has arrived. That's the future preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. It's preached by a forerunner, just as it was at Jesus' first coming. The forerunner was John the Baptist. Who was he a type of? He was a type of Elijah. Elijah will return. Malachi. The book of Malachi chapter 4. Revelation chapter 11. The law and the prophets will return and preach the truth and then the king will come. Just like it did in the first coming. Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, they come. A forerunner. It's preached. The kingdom and then the king comes. Many, it's preached by a forerunner. It's preached by 144,000 Jewish witnesses. Many will respond in faith and be saved. And the purpose of this emphasis will serve to prepare and regather Israel back into the promised land so they can finally believe upon their Messiah. The gospel of the kingdom emphasizes the fulfillment of the Abrahamic, the Davidic, and the new covenants in the Old Testament made to the house of Israel. There is an inseparable Jewish element here. But it's all 100% true. And we as Gentiles can claim every bit of it. The promises are not for us. They're for Israel. But we benefit from it. We benefit from it. And we are welcomed into that. Those of us who have the faith of Abraham. The gospel of the kingdom, that form of the gospel is much like the gospel of Matthew. When you read the book of the gospel of Matthew, the emphasis here is that Jesus is the King of the Jews. Doesn't mean He's not a servant. Doesn't mean He's not the Son of Man. Doesn't mean He's not a Savior. Doesn't mean He's not the Son of God. He's all of those things. But the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes that He is the King of the Jews. That He is the Jewish Messiah. So one form of the Gospel is the Gospel of the Kingdom. Is it a gospel that we should preach as Gentiles? Absolutely. Is it a gospel that ought to give us hope and comfort? 
Absolutely. We serve a literal king. He's coming to do what President Trump can never do. He's coming to do what none of these politicians can ever do. That's hope. And when we preach a God that made a promise to Israel and is going to do it, then we can realize that every promise He made to us in the church, He's also going to do. Someone once asked, what proof can you give me? What single proof can you give me? Not personal experience. What proof can you give me that the Bible is the Word of God? In the English language, it's two words. The Jew. That's the proof. God made a promise. He raised up a nation. He preserved the nation. Man's never been able to exterminate it. It's been regathered into the land in unbelief. And Christ is going to come and set up a kingdom. Everything just like was said to him, Isaac and Jacob. What's the proof the Bible is the Word of God? The Jew. There's other proofs too. That's a good answer. When I share the gospel with Israelis, I like to say different things. One thing I like to say is my, my ancestors worshipped idols. But now, I follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God who keeps His promises. Because He kept His promises to your people, and because Messiah will come, I know He'll keep His promises to me. Because your Bible says He would be light to the Gentiles. I also like to say everything about my faith is Jewish, except for me. I believe in a Jewish Messiah. He came and He'll come again. The Gospel of the Kingdom. The book of Matthew. Not four different Gospels, but an emphasis. Why are we given four Gospels? Why are we given different emphasis? It's because it's the whole counsel of God. We should preach it. As the days get closer to Christ's coming, we ought to preach it even more. And I'm going to stop here today. Today I'll just emphasize the Gospel of the Kingdom. We've also got what's called the gospel of the grace of God. Let me just read the verse while we're waiting for the pizzas to come back. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Israel rejected the gospel. God purposed to build a work. Jesus said, I'll build my church. The gospel will go to the ends of the earth. The church age, the emphasis changed. Doesn't mean the kingdom wasn't preached, but the primary emphasis changed. Acts 20, 24. Paul says, but none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was commissioned to go out and preach the grace of God to the Gentiles. Does that mean he didn't preach the kingdom? No, he did to the Jews. He continued to do it. But it's a kingdom that was rejected and its coming would be postponed. God always planned for it that way. There are always two comings in the Old Testament. Balaam, when he prophesied blessing over Israel, spoke of Messiah as a star out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel. Star, first coming. Scepter, second coming. is always there. But Paul was commissioned to preach the gospel of the grace of God. What's the gospel of the grace of God? What is the emphasis upon the gospel, regarding the gospel of the grace of God. It's good news, just like the gospel of the kingdom is good news that Messiah is a king who will reign over a literal kingdom and restore the earth. The gospel of the grace of God is good news that Jesus Christ was rejected that He might pay the price for our sins, Jew and Gentile, on a Roman cross for our salvation. The emphasis of the gospel of God's grace is the substitutionary and propitiatory atonement 
that God accepted in Jesus Christ and the resurrection proves that unlike Cain's sacrifice, God accepted the sacrifice of His Son. The gospel of the grace of God is all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. If you wanted to sum up Isaiah 53 in one word, it would be rejected. In the Hebrew, it would be Netzer or Nazarene. If you were from Nazareth, in the New Testament, you were considered rejected. Just like people from Mississippi are considered hillbillies. That's what the Yankees say. That's what the Yankees say. Did you know that the, the, the most prosperous state in the Union with, with, the most, uh, with, the most, with the wealthiest people in the Union prior to 1861 was not New York or California, it was the state of Mississippi. It had the, had the most thriving economy in the whole country. And the reason it's never recovered is because Yankee troops, who were not saviors, but who were wicked men who raped and pillaged, scarred the land and it's never recovered. Sad. That's what men do. Wickedness. War. And the decisions and, and sins of men always have scars. But when the Messiah comes, there will never be scars. Everything will be restored. Everything will be restored. But in the, in, the, in the Gospels, it says that Jesus went and lived in Nazareth as it was spoken by the prophets, He shall be a Nazarene. There is no verse in the Old Testament that says He shall be a Nazarene. But there's a whole chapter that if you sum up Messiah in one word, it means rejected. If you were from Nazareth, you were rejected. That's why, that's why Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was a figure of speech. Isaiah 53 is where it's written, He will be a Nazarene, He will be rejected. So the gospel of the grace of God required the rejection of Messiah so that the sacrifice could be made. When Abraham took Isaac up on that hill, Isaac wasn't a little kid, he wasn't a lad. He was a young man that fully was aware of what was going on. Isaac was a type of Christ because he was willing to lay his life down. But Abraham said, when Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? There's the wood and thanks for the altar. Abraham spoke prophetically. He probably didn't even know it. God will, God will provide Himself a lamb for the sacrifice. In Hebrew, it is not God will provide for Himself a lamb. The King James is correct. And that, the proof of that is the Hebrew translations that are done by Hebrew people or Jewish people that are not followers of Jesus into the English language. It reads just like our King James Bible. He will provide Himself a lamb. Not just for Himself in that immediate context, but God Himself would be the lamb. He would be the sacrifice. The gospel of the grace of God emphasizes that fulfillment. A form of the gospel. I'm going to stop there today. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Look, I'm not preaching for gospels. But the gospel is bigger than the cross. It's bigger than that. If all Jesus did was come and die on a cross and shed His blood, if that's all He did, then Paul said, we are of all men most miserable. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's not what all Jesus did. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. He was obedient in His life. If He wasn't actively obedient in all things, tempted like as we are in all things yet without sin, then He would not have been a perfect sacrifice. And then He shed His blood in fulfillment of prophecy on a Roman cross. He was rejected. He was buried. But then He rose up from the grave, something that no other preacher or teacher could do. And He rose up from the grave, proving God accepted the sacrifice, but it didn't stop there. He said, I'll build my church. He ordained His church. He sent His church out. The gospel would go to the ends of the earth. 
God's plan would be fulfilled. Jews and Gentiles of all nations would believe. And then as the time of the church began to wind down, God would resume His work amongst Israel. A nation would be born in a single day. Something that didn't happen. The modern state of Israel, May 14, 1948, a single day became a nation. Fulfillment of Isaiah 66. And then God would begin to gather His people in unbelief. The world would become chaotic. The end would near. Christ would take His church. He would fulfill His promises. The gospel of the kingdom would be preached again. The earth would be given a chance. And as the Creator prepares to step back into space and time, the everlasting gospel, God is Creator. This Messiah is not only the King of Israel, He's not only the sacrifice, but He is Creator. And you better worship Him because He's coming to judge. I'll talk more about the gospel of the grace of God next week. Then I want to get into what Paul called my gospel. Okay? The go- my gospel is the gospel of God's grace. The grace, the gospel of God's grace, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But with it go the additional revelations that were made known to Paul for the church. For us as Christians, it doesn't start with believing on Jesus. Paul said we must build the church. I mean, Jesus said, I will build my church. And there's baptism and the Lord's Supper. There's discipleship and evangelism. There's the, there's the fellowship of the brethren. There's the testimony that the church is. There's Christian families and marriages. I got to preach in Nepal where there's a lot of marital problems amongst the Christians because they carry that Hindu caste system about marriage. There's two, things, there's two ways the church reproduces itself. It preaches the gospel to the lost and it raises up godly seed and reproduces in the families. God primarily ordains the men of the church to go preach to the lost. He primarily ordains the women of the church to raise up godly seed. Each are involved in reproducing the church. That's all part of what Paul called my gospel. It's all part of it. We can't neglect it. The epistles of Paul were given to the church. We cannot go and focus on the Sermon on the Mount and ignore all this other. The epistles were specifically given to us. We better pay attention because everything Paul says has just as much authority as what Jesus preached to Jews in the Gospels because it's all inspired by God. Jesus wrote all of it anyway. Jesus told Paul, I'm going to tell you what to write. Jesus told His disciples, I'm going to bring you remembrance of what happened and the Holy Spirit's going to tell you about things that have not yet happened. And you'll write them. Something that Muhammad never could... Muhammad never spoke one word of prophecy that wasn't an allusion to something he already got from the Old Testament. It's nothing new there. The Quran actually says that Israel is for the Jews. It actually says that in the Quran. And yet the Muslims today conveniently ignore that. But everything Muhammad preached, he got the original information from the Bible, from the Old Testament. He plagiarized. God's prophets and the disciples didn't plagiarize. They got it straight from the Holy Spirit. And then we've got the fourth form, which is the everlasting gospel. An emphasis that Jesus is Creator. I hope I'm not confusing you here because this is not four Gospels, but there are four forms of it. And in our Christian life and in our Christian preaching, there are times for proper emphasis. But we better not forget the whole story because the whole story is worth preaching. The whole story is worth remembering in times of need and depending upon where people are when God puts them in our path. We need to be prepared to teach the whole counsel of God. And for the believer, for the one that trusts in God and in Jesus Christ, every bit of the story, from Adam and Eve down to Noah, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Moses and the Judges and Israel. In the intertestamental period, the Gospels, the early Jewish church, the church age, the book of Revelation. For those of us that fear God, the whole story is Gospel. The whole story is good news. It's good news. Let's live like that by preaching it. The whole story. Next week, I'm just kind of waiting for them to come in. But Next week, we'll talk more about the grace of God and then Paul's Gospel, the My Gospel, which includes the revelations given to the church, the responsibilities we have in the body of Christ. Some of those things are difficult, but we better be faithful. There are things the church won't do anymore. That's a ministry given to it with regard to church discipline and holding each other accountable. We don't do them anymore, but we should do them. And then the everlasting Gospel. Praise God, the one we preach is a Creator God. He's Creator. He's coming to judge. We ought to worship Him.